me ask you this question. How are you doing? Good? Some nods of the head, some nah, some thumbs up. Do you know, as Brits, we're really good at asking that question, but we're really bad at answering it. Have you noticed? So people would go like, how are you doing? And normally, yeah, good, how are you? We just, we just knock it back straight away. Or it's like, nah, yeah, nah. and then we just move on. So we ask the question a number of times to people throughout a day, how are you doing? We don't really, if someone actually honestly said, well, can we sit down for 40, 45 minutes and just have a really good long chat? And you're like, that wasn't the point of my question. I was just simply making conversation. But the most common answer to the question, how are you doing, is busy. Most common answer to that question, busy. Life's manic. Life's crazy. Whether you are a, uh, a, a, a busy student, a busy young parent, a busy empty nester, everybody is busy. It's the most common answer. I was amazed when I spoke to people during lockdown. How are you doing? Just really busy. It's like, what? How can you be busy? Just like doing stuff around the house, getting this done, doing that. And just people manage to be busy. Now, there's a healthy kind of busyness, isn't there? There's a healthy kind of busyness where we fill our life with stuff that matters. Stuff that, that gives us life. By that definition, I think Jesus was pretty busy. But the problem is when we have so much to do that it leaves us feeling overwhelmed. I think there's just this common thread through humanity in this season where there's like a low-lying anxiety of the fact that we feel like nothing is finished. We feel like there's always something more to be done and we just simply cannot catch up. Can you resonate with that or is it just me? Good, I'm glad two of you can resonate. I will preach to you this morning and the rest can just listen in. We seem to try and fill our life with just certain things that we think, if I can just have that, then everything will be manageable and then we'll be okay. If I can just have another hour in the day, if I can just get that job done on my to-do list, if I could just go there on holiday, if I could just have that device, then everything will be okay and life will be more manageable. But it never happens, does it? It just doesn't happen. In fact, there was, uh, let me just take one thing. Let's just take technology for a moment. There was a promise of technology that it would speed up our life and make things easier for us. That was the promise of developing technology to the point where, I hope you find this humorous, in 1967, there was a government committee that predicted by the 1980s that the working week, due to technology and the development of technology, the working week would be 22 hours a week for only 27 weeks of the year. Wouldn't that be nice? Going to work 22 hours this week just for 27 weeks, and then the other, whoever can do maths really quickly, 20-something weeks, um, we're just going to have free time. In the 1960s, they thought that the main problem for humanity in the mid-80s would, would, be, would be we would have too much leisure time. They were right that technology would advance. I mean, just look at what we had in our homes in the 1960s and what we've got in our homes now. And some of you were alive in the 1960s. And you can remember what homes were like in the 1960s. I hear these myths of rumors and dreams of what life used to be like. <laughs> Technology has advanced so much, but the promise that it would speed up, that it would, it would um, make life more easy for us has simply not been the case. Now, this isn't a rant on modern technology. I embrace modern technology. I've got phones and the rest of it and all that kind of stuff. It's not. It's just an example that we can think that we just need to add something else into our life. And the promise of that thing will be life will be easier. And it simply is not. Corrie ten Boom once said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. If the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Maybe not with technology, but maybe with anything. Sometimes things that we think are good, that we can get busy doing, that we neglect the one thing 
that God has made us for and created us for, which is connection with him. So Sally Ann, will you just come and read Luke uh, chapter 10 for us? That'd be great. While they were traveling, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who was also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but the one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and this will not be taken away from her. This is beeping red, just so you're aware. I don't know if that's important or not, but just so you know. Matt. <laughs> I can see that glaze, look. It's flashing red at me. I don't know what that means, but as long as you know. <coughs> red is never a good color, is it? I just, just when something flashes red at you, you just know there's going to be a problem. Um, so Jesus has been traveling. Let's get back on track. Jesus has been traveling with his disciples and he has been busy. I mean, if you want a definition of busy, he has been teaching. He's been healing. He's trying to get his way with disciples that really haven't got a clue what's going on to try and understand what life following God is all about. All of that whilst knowing that he's going to a cross. Can you imagine carrying that with everything else that's going on? He had a lot to deal with. He's been busy. But at no point do we ever read that Jesus is hurried. We looked at it a few weeks ago, didn't we? Zacchaeus. The only time that Jesus says the word hurry in the Gospels. And he tells Zacchaeus to hurry away from trying to climb up that tree. So Jesus has got a busy life, but he's not hurried. And he arrives in Bethany. He arrives in this uh, town, village, two miles outside of Jerusalem, and he's welcomed into the home of his friends, Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha are like, we, you read the story and you can see the contrast straight away. I'm sure many of you have read this story or you know this story well. Uh, and, and Martha is, is busy getting stuff ready for Jesus. And I can fully sympathize with her. Can you imagine having Jesus come to your house like when we have people coming around to our house friends or close uh, close friends or family we are just like that's got to go in there shove that in there just get that cupboard shut as quickly out hide that under the bed and you look at the kids and you just think we haven't got time for a bath so just shove that over their head and just hope for the best and that's how we live our life that's very much I'm, I'm looking at some parents for some reassurance and thank you uh, those of you that are honest enough to realize uh, and be honest enough to say that often it can be manic and that's what I would be like if Jesus was coming to visit my house for tea. I would be frantically trying to get everything done. I am, I am a Martha. I, I, I would be there just trying to get it all sorted. And then you contrast that with Mary, who is sat cross-legged at the feet of Jesus just listening. I can imagine, have you, have you ever done this? You know, when you're trying to get someone, you're doing something and somebody else isn't and you want them to do it and you make it really blatantly obvious that you're doing it. Like in the kitchen, like, kabang, let's put those plates down there. Kaboom, let's shut that cupboard in a hope that they will hear what I'm doing and they're not. I think that's what Martha would have been doing in this moment because that's what I would have done. And that's probably what I do more often than not, just to try and prove a point. But, but nothing is going to stop Mary from being sat. She is sat at the feet of Jesus. Some of you are laughing a bit too much for that story to not be true. <laughs> she sat. You know, that posture for Mary, that alone would have been something that Martha really struggled with. 
that posture of being sat at the feet of Jesus. Now, I don't think as well, we don't know from the story, but I would suspect Mary and Martha weren't the only people in their house. When Jesus arrived, other people were with him. Other people were attracted to him. I think there's probably more people in that house. And for all of those people in that room to see Mary sat at the feet of Jesus would have been scandalous. See, the parable that's told just before this is a story of a good Samaritan. Some of you will know that. People in and outside of church know this story, that there's a, 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 a Jewish man that's near dead by the side of the road and he's been left. And two religious Jewish leaders walk past and they do nothing. And then a Samaritan man comes and helps the Jewish man who's been beaten up. Samaritan. For those that don't know, the Jews and the Samaritans, that this wasn't just like a friendly rivalry like football fans, although that can get pretty vicious. This wasn't like just us knocking the Welsh. <laughs> friendly rivalry. So I'm looking at Mary because she's Welsh and she can take it. This isn't like that. This is out and out racism. This is hatred towards each other. And yet we see that in this moment, God redefines the boundaries of who God's people are, who are the kingdom people. And he says it's not just for one group of people. It's now, it's now spreading beyond that. And we start to see this Samaritan starts to help this Jewish man. And in one story, everything is changed. If that wasn't scandalous enough to people that were hearing the story, these Jewish listeners, then this is even more scandalous. That Mary, a woman, would be sat at the feet of a rabbi. Mary's adopting the posture that was reserved exclusively for male disciples. Those that would have sat at the feet of their rabbi, learnt from the rabbi in order to be the rabbi. It's where Paul sits. In Acts 22, at the feet of his rabbi. It's where students would sit when they desire one day to become and spread the message of the rabbi they, they followed. Mary has just crossed an invisible but hugely significant line. And Jesus lets her. In fact, Jesus encourages her, as we see from the story. Because he doesn't say, Mary, do you want to go and help Martha? No, he says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and worried about many things. Mary's chosen the right choice. I wonder if you feel like you don't belong. I wonder if you feel like sitting at the feet of Jesus is a place where you exclude yourself from. What I've been through, what I've done. Maybe the church does a really good job of excluding you. We have to put our hands up and say that sometimes that's the reality, isn't it? As, as, as the church, we can make people feel like you're over there because look what you've done. But Jesus seems to affirm those that don't belong. He says, no, no, you can sit here. You can stay here. In fact, this is where I want you. That's the invitation to come and take your place and sit with me for a while. I wonder how we are when God starts to redefine our world about how he works. When he starts to use people that we don't think are worthy of being used. When he starts to move and do something and we think, how long a minute? That, that can't be right. God wouldn't do that. When God starts to reshape and remold how we think he should work and what he should do. One commentator says this of this moment. Mary has quietly taken her place as a would-be teacher and preacher in the kingdom of God. And Jesus affirms her right to do so. But Mary boils over. Mary's like, this is, this is, this is wrong. She's, Lord, can't you, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve? Left me to do all the stuff that's expected of me? Look, I'm doing what's expected of me. I'm doing all the right stuff. I'm doing it all, Jesus. Don't you care? Look at me. I've got it all right. I'm doing everything I need to do. And look where she is. How dare she be there? Tell her to come and do what's expected of her. Actually, what I expect her to do, tell her to come and do. And Jesus responds. 
Martha, Martha, you were worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. See, the problem with Martha isn't that she's serving and working for Jesus. See, a lot of people read this passage and they will conclude, right, serving bad, sitting good. So we, we embrace the contemplative life. And I'm all for that. It's a great way. It's, a, it's tra- transformed my life learning what it is to sit with Jesus. But that's not the focus of this passage. If it was, then the problem would be the the story that goes beforehand, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus actually is saying we need to serve him by loving our neighbors in practical ways. Jesus isn't opposed to serving. He commands it. The problem with Martha is that she's moved away from Jesus. She's seeking to do enough, to prove enough, to be enough apart from Jesus. See, the serving, serving God can be the enemy of intimacy with God. If we base our identity, our life on doing rather than being. John 15 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. We can only bear the fruit if we remain in him. The invitation is intimacy. I wonder what we're willing to sacrifice for the sake of intimacy in OCC. Our serving has to come from sitting instead of sitting. By serving, I don't just mean doing what we do when we gather in church. That's great. We all serve each other. We're a family. And so we serve in different ways. We serve in ways that we don't even want to really serve in because it needs to be done. And we do it because we're part of a family and that's what families do. But I'm also talking about the way we serve when we're scattered. It's about God knowing that you've, you've been with God and the fruit that you bear when you serve him in the different spaces, like telling stories of transformed lives in the people that you connect with when they ask questions. And you think you're just an office manager and you realize that actually you just get to tell people about transformed lives and you realize then that you're actually an evangelist and he's using you. Or maybe you just care for people and you create community and connections and you bring people together and you don't realize that you're a pastor and you think you're just a teacher. Or maybe it's helping your grandkids or your kids how to understand that they're loved and how to live in the world. And you don't realize that the calling of God on your life is not just to be a grandparent, you're teaching. And you're teaching your grandkids and you're teaching your kids we can only do this effectively and consistently as we ser- uh, with serving as we start with sitting. The fruit comes from abiding. I noticed this a couple of weeks ago. In verse 39, we bring 39 up. Um, we see that Martha is introduced. Um, there we go, yes. Now this is being Martha. And she says, she, that's Martha, had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet. I was reading that a couple of weeks ago. Do you know what word just jumped out at me? The word also, I've never seen that before. So there's Martha, who had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the feet of Jesus. Do you know there was a point when Jesus was there and Mary and Martha were sat there? There has to be for an also to be in there. They're also together, they're sat there. In fact, the message translation makes it really clear, I think. It says, she had a sister Mary who sat before the master, hanging on every word he said, but Martha was pulled away. To be pulled away, you have to be there first to be pulled away. So there was a point at which Martha was sat with her sister, but something pulls her away. What pulls you away? What is it that pulls you away? Maybe we're addicted to doing. Because in the doing, we feel like we can achieve something. 
And in achieving, we feel acceptable. And when we feel acceptable, we feel loved. I think that's perhaps where Martha is. And yet the invitation is to sit in the apparent uselessness of unproductivity and inactivity, simply sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him. See, the act of sitting at the feet of Jesus is a protest against our culture that says a person's worth is found in the amount of things they can get done. Because that's where we live, isn't it? We live in a world that says you will be successful if you can do this, 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 and this. If you can achieve this much, if you can do that much. If, as a pastor, if your church can be this size, then you're a successful pastor. Forget how many disciples are being formed. Forget how many, how many people are encountering Jesus. And we live like that in the world. It's not just in the church. How many of us rush around seeking to prove ourselves and we wonder why we're riddled with anxiety? We wonder why we're worried about many things. Because we worry about how we're perceived, about how we're doing in the eyes of those closest to us, in the eyes of God, and it's an attempt to appear significant. I wonder if that's where Mary is. John, just be a good boy. Just make sure everybody thinks you've got your stuff together. And the temptation of that is to try and perfect myself on my own. Try and prove to everybody else that I'm good enough. Try and prove to everybody else that I'm all right. And I end up perfecting myself on my own and we wonder why life feels like I can't keep up. It's like the lawyer that speaks to Jesus in the beginning of the Good Samaritan. The lawyer says to, to Jesus, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I've got to do it. So Jesus, you tell me. It's got to be me that does it. And we know that sin is bad. and We've got sin in our life. Because if you're breathing, then you've got sin. That's a shock to some people. We know we've got sin in our life. So we go, how? What do I need to do in order to be good enough? Because God, I know I'm not good enough. So I've got to do something to be good enough. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. No amount of proving, no amount of doing, no amount of achieving will work. Just look back at the beginning. Look at Adam and Eve. What happens with Adam and Eve? God says, don't eat of that fruit. And what do they do? They eat of that fruit. How many times has God said, don't do that? And we do it anyway. I can sympathize with Adam and Eve. And they eat of that fruit. And what do they do? They hide themselves and they try and cover themselves. Can you imagine the anxiety of trying to sew fig leaves together before God finds you out? Oh, split another one. Just get more leaves, mate. Will you just get, come on. Like, can you, have you ever like, tried to just like, split a hole in a leaf? It just splits, doesn't it? Can you imagine trying to do that? Trying to prove yourself, trying to cover yourself, trying to perfect yourself before the eyes of God. And there's anxiety and there's frustration. Because it's easier to keep on moving and keep on doing than address the real deep down reality of our brokenness. Just going to just gonna do. Just make it look like it's all. Just, yeah. Martha, just, just put that there. Just do that there. Just, Mary, would you? Because it's easier to do that. But Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. And Martha chooses independence. She chooses life away from Jesus and life away from the loving community that I think is represented in Mary. And it leads to isolation, scarcity, anxiety. One thing is necessary. Mary's made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. Mary made the right choice. And all because of this, she starts to experience the limitless overflowing love of God, the acceptance to be where she shouldn't be. 
to be used in a way she didn't think she could be, like a river bursting its banks, bringing life to every part of the dry and barren parts of us, the destructive places within us that say you will never measure up, you could never be enough, you don't belong here. Jesus says, come, sit, let's break that exhausting cycle and have some life. See, the story of Mary and Martha is not about unburdening and unloading your over-busy schedule. Just need to have a day off. Just need to have a holiday. How many of us, just out of interest, see by nods or scowls, you can usually tell. How many of us have ever gone, I just need a holiday? And you go for a holiday and you feel like you actually unwind a little bit. But then three days later when you get back, you feel like you've never been on a holiday. Ever experienced that? Because a holiday cannot give you what your soul is craving. Yes, a holiday is important and we love holidays and they're fantastic and you should go on holiday and enjoy it. But it cannot provide for you what God created for him to provide for you. Holiday simply cannot do that. A day off simply cannot do that because only he alone can do that. One thing is necessary. Mary's made the right choice. And it's an invitation to a deep spiritual vitality that comes as we cease hurrying, seek, stop seeking to cover up our own inadequacies and accept that we need Jesus. Sitting with Jesus is not the place of resignation or aggression. It's a posture of openness that allows God to do more than you could ever do on your own. One thing is necessary, and Mary's made the right choice. Mary's learnt to not be so hurried that she neglects to give herself the very thing she cannot live without, and it's Jesus. Because, you know, Mary and Martha are not the point of this story. If they are, it comes about, do I just sit now or do I just do? And if you're anything like me, most of the time you get the balance completely wrong. Because when you're sitting, you should be doing. And when you're doing, you should be sitting. And you just get caught up in a whole internal cycle of, I don't know anymore. I don't know what I'm meant to be doing. I'm coming or going. And that's what happens if we make the story about Mary and Martha. But if we make it about Jesus, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Because you can be in a posture of sitting, whether you're sitting, whether you're serving, whether you're striving, whatever. It doesn't matter because you've got that posture because you realize Jesus is the point of the story. We cannot live without Jesus because every single one of us carries hurts that only Jesus can heal, sins that only his blood can cleanse, and a hunger that only he can fill. For he came that we might have life and life more abundantly, binding up the brokenhearted, bringing freedom to the captives, sight to the blind, comforting those who mourn, beauty for ashes. He alone is the point of the story. One thing is necessary, and Mary's made the right choice. Today's Mother's Day you've just figured that out, there's some flowers here that you can give to your mum. And we remember, don't we, to give mums a day off, to stop striving and just to receive. That's the point, by the way. We'll make sure the kids know that when they come back in. But you know what? It's the invitation for every single one of us for every single day. It's not just one thing for mothers on one day. For in a life in Jesus, it's the invitation of every single day. One thing is necessary. and Jesus clarifies what's most important. In a world that demands everything as urgent and important, Jesus says, be with me. Learn from my word. Sit at my feet. Learn to listen to my voice. So many of us neglect that. And we miss that part of life. And we wonder why the other stuff doesn't work. You know, Jesus goes a lot slower and he takes a lot longer than we would like him to. We're impatient to arrive and he invites us to sit, allowing the spirit to form something in us and it takes time and it's in his way. And some of us need to give that grace to others, allowing God to do what he's doing in his timing, in his way, 
in their life. So I'm going to finish with this. And we're going to come and take communion. I'm going to invite you in this moment to sit. To sit in his presence. And to learn something that when we sit in his presence, we can take it into every moment of our day. Every moment that we live. Every moment that we breathe. Someone once asked uh, respected author and philosopher Dallas Willard a question. Some of you may know Dallas Willard and his writings. Um, Somebody once asked him a question. And they said this, what do I need to do to become the me that I want to be? It's a great question, isn't it? What do I need to do in order to be the me that I want to be? There was a long silence, as was often the case, apparently, when people spoke to Dallas Willard. And eventually he said this, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. They scribbled it down in their journal. Oh, what a great answer. If Twitter was invented, that would have been a tweet. Yes, that's great. Thanks, Dallab. Yeah, thanks, Dallas. What, what next? What next? What, what's the next thing? And there was a big, long silence. And he responded and said, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. See, what hurry does is it robs us, it robs us of intimacy because we're always living in a moment in the future or a moment that's gone. We're never living in this moment with God and what he's doing. God's invitation is to say, let's walk together in this moment. Learn to sit with me. And as a church, we're going to start to bring some stuff through our gospel communities that teaches us how to sit with Jesus. We're going to give opportunities to increasingly sit with Jesus, to be with Jesus in order to become like Jesus, to know then we can do what Jesus did. But the temptation is to say, I don't need that. I just got to start doing for Jesus. I just got to start going for Jesus. And let's, we're going to do that. We are going to go wide. We've got a vision for 130 gospel communities in our region. One for every thousand people that live in our region. Wouldn't that be incredible? I get excited when I start to think of, like, we could be meeting in different places in, in Stratford-on-Avon. We could have, like, a, a gathering here on a Sunday morning. And I know that there's other communities that are seeking to reach people happening all through the week. That starts to excite me. Thank you, Ian. Glad it excites you as well. When you get excited, you get more northern. Have you noticed that? (laughs) It's like my wife, when she gets more angry, she gets more Welsh. And then it turns into Jamaican. I don't know why that is. It's this very strange process of... Anyway, I'm diverting. (laughs) The invitation for us as a church is to go wide. And we are seeking to go wide. And we're going to orientate ourselves around what God is doing rather than cramming God into what we already do. And that's what we're, that's what we're going for. And we're seeking to go wide. But if we want to go wide, we have to go deep. You can't do one without the other. I tried, trust me, and it nearly killed me. You can't do one without the other. If we want to go wide, you have to go deep. John Ortberg writes this. He says, for most of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It's not that we'll give up on Jesus. It's that we'll become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We'll just skim our lives instead of actually living them. God is doing something amongst us. And I think there's a greater hunger in our church. As I meet with people and speak with people, there's a greater desire for him. People are feeling stirred. And the temptation in this season is to go, got it, let's go, boom. And we will do that. But let us go deep. Let us get deeper into him. See, the, the response to Jesus to that lawyer that asks him the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you know what Jesus' response is? 
He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And at the end of the passage, he says, go and do likewise. Then Luke, who's writing this, immediately follows that moment up with this story of Mary and Martha. Love and hurry are completely incompatible. We cannot have a greater love for God, a greater love for each other, a greater love for the lost if we are hurried, preoccupied, living from one thing to the next. All of my worst moments as a father, as a husband, as a pastor, as a human being are when I'm late for an appointment, when I'm behind on an unrealistic to-do list, when I'm cramming too much in today, I ooze anger and nagging and it's the opposite of love. And some of us need to figure out how we do this in our workplaces. Instead of just going, that's what life is like and I'm just going to be like that at work, we say, actually, God, you're calling me to be you in this place. How do I do this? And we get deep with Jesus and we say, teach us, Jesus. Teach us how it is that we can live sitting in your presence while we're serving and striving at work. Sitting at the feet of Jesus is something that Mary chose to do. Something that we have to choose to do. Not just once, but over and over again, day in, day out. Saying no to some things so we can yet say yes to the one thing that's most necessary. And so as a church, we're going to start to seek a rhythm of life that facilitates us to do this. We're trialing some stuff now with various groups of people that we're going to put through our gospel communities. We're just trying to create this rhythm of saying, we're going to sit with you. We're going to go deep with you because we know you're calling us to go wide. But the challenge all along will be the conflict of Mary and Martha that's in ourselves. And it's about having enough time with Jesus in order to sustain our doing for Jesus. One thing is necessary. Do we actually believe Jesus? One thing is necessary. God incarnate, Jesus Christ, says one thing is necessary. Do we believe him?